You're listening to Michigan News from MLive on Friday, August 18th. I'm Patrick Shea. Coming up, hear about those in Michigan facing charges for their attempts to undermine election results. What's it got to do with the former president's own indictments? And what could it mean for upcoming elections? After that, it's pickleball. Loved by some and just too noisy for others. Hear about one Michigan city that closed a popular pickleball court due to noise complaints. Then sports reporter Hugh Burnrider tells us about a former football coach trying to end the stigma around mental health in student athletes. And finally, a historic guided tour of Michigan's largest waterfall could be in its final season of operation. That's all ahead on Michigan News from MLive. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Efforts to overturn the 2020 election have led to multiple federal indictments of former President Donald Trump. That's probably not news to you. But what role has Michigan played in all of this? And what's it mean for upcoming elections? Simon Schuster is a political reporter with MLive and is with us now. Hi, Simon. Hey, thanks for having me, Patrick. So as you've reported, there are 19 people here in Michigan also facing charges for trying to undermine 2020 election results. Some of those people are political figures. Let's start there. Yeah, certainly. So um, among these people is the former Republican nominee for attorney general in 2022, Matt DiPerno. So uh, prior to the 2020 election, uh, Matt DiPerno, I should note, was not someone who had a political profile. And he really rose to political prominence because of his activities after the 2020 election, because of his ability to obtain voting tabulators and cast doubt on the legitimacy of this election. The charges have to do with uh, how months after the 2020 election and even after Joe Biden was inaugurated as president, they were able to obtain voting equipment in some of these remote counties. And special prosecutor D.J. Hilson alleges that uh, DiPerno and his sort of accomplices in this case, uh, another attorney, Stephanie Gentilla and former state rep Dare Rendon, went to these rural townships and essentially told them, oh, they had authority to take this voting equipment and were able to get these local clerks to give them access to stuff that uh, essentially compromised its security. Um, they then took these voting machines and in one instance went to a uh, someone's condo in um, Oakland County and performed what they had characterized as forensic examinations on them, trying to elicit or, or find evidence that, that these machines were compromised and that really the result of the 2020 election was illegitimate as a result. And how about the other 16 folks facing charges in Michigan? What was their role? Sure. So in, in the sort of uh, chaotic weeks after Election Day itself, when essentially the conservative media ecosystem was rife with allegations of widespread fraud and a lot of certainty that Donald Trump had really won the election, there was also ongoing litigation in Michigan. And on the day that uh, Michigan's Electoral College representatives were being appointed in the state capitol, um, a process that has to that has certain legal requirements. The members who are appointed have to be uh, representing the political party of the candidate that won the election, in this case, Joe Biden in Michigan. And 
they believed that if it, it turned out that Trump had actually won the election and that they need to also appoint themselves as an alternative slate of electors. So as these legitimate electors were convening in the state capitol, uh, these 16 Republicans met in the basement of the Michi- then Michigan Republican Party headquarters, uh, signed documents attesting that they were the duly elected, uh, duly appointed electors for the state of Michigan and that Donald Trump had won the election. They then later took those documents, mailed them to the National Archives saying that they were the electors. And then uh, more than two and a half years later, we see that they have been charged with forgery related felonies because of the signing of these documents. And what's the response been to these charges from the Michigan Republican Party? And what are attitudes about the 2020 election like now? So there's sort of been like a dichotomy. On one hand, we've had uh, elected officials in Michigan, primarily in the legislature, who've taken more of a measured approach, where they say that the burden is on Dana Nessel not to prove that these were politically motivated charges, but that they are serious. Um, and then on the other hand, we have the party itself, uh, who was elected by you know other activist members in the Republican base. And they uh, instead say that, essentially, that these are tyrannical charges by a uh, attorney general who's tilting towards authoritarianism. And that, you know, and they're continuing the, the Michigan Republican Party, I should note, is all in on theories of systemic election fraud. Um, the, the party leadership itself is wholly convinced that there still remains systemic election fraud in Michigan's elections and that uh, all of the elections have been compromised. Um, they're, I think, to put it mildly, election skeptics of all elections uh, to this day. Simon, you broke this all down really well in a story at MLive.com slash politics. It's titled, How Could Republican Indictments Shape Michigan's 2024 Election? So I'll, I'll ask you just that. What could all of this mean at the polls? Yeah, and I think it's a, a really important question because, uh, you know, Michigan has a lot of tie-ins here to these uh, indictments, um, including the indictments being faced by former President Donald Trump. Um, but the, the particular focus here, I think, is really important because it's going to move from the political uh, consultants and, and political scientists that I talked to. They tell me that it's going to move focus away from necessarily uh, President Joe Biden's record and the things that Republicans would love to hit him on, the things that uh, the policies that have enacted high inflation over the last four years, and instead are going to be concentrated on these issues. It will be unavoidable to discuss, especially if uh, former President Trump is the nominee in 2024, and uh, it'll prevent uh, some significant difficulties for Republicans, uh, or at least as in terms of what experts have told me. Now, in your story, you referenced three confirmed indictments of former President Trump and that a fourth could be on its way. Well, now it's here. Trump has been indicted in Georgia. And yet again, Michigan plays some role. Tell us more. Yeah, so this is a unique indictment uh, as opposed to the one Trump is facing at the federal level for election interference. Here, uh, the Fulton County prosecutor in Georgia is charging him under Georgia state law for essentially a racketeering charge. These are charges that are normally used to attempt to convict organized crime organizations. And so in this indictment, they present a numerous acts that try to underscore how Trump and 18 others who have been charged here attempted to illicitly overturn the results of the 2020 election. And they really point to two key events in Michigan as evidence of this. The first was uh, a meeting uh, with Michigan's Republican legislative leaders in the Oval Office with President Trump just a week after the election. He had invited them to the Oval Office, Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirkey and House Speaker Lee Chatfield, and tried to convince them to essentially decide the election in Michigan in favor for him. They asked him to have some backbone and do the right thing, uh, according to Lee Chatfield, in, in terms of his testimony to the January 6th committee, and that, that he, they should appoint electors who would back him uh, to, as the true winner of the 2020 election. Um, 
they came out afterwards and made a public statement saying that they were that they were committed to following the law and that they hadn't seen sufficient enough or widespread uh, evidence of widespread fraud that could change the result of the election. Uh, the second event here is a, a now infamous December 2nd hearing of the House Oversight Committee that was later parodied by Saturday Night Live, where Trump's attorney Rudy Giuliani and another indicted Trump attorney, Jenna Ellis, brought forward a parade of witnesses who were essentially making vague accusations that they had witnessed fraud or that the machines were compromised without any sort of concrete proof that any of these things were going on. Um, and in this meeting, he had asked uh, the legislators to take back their power. And he, again, wanted the legislature to decide the election in favor of Trump. Now, they also, these, uh, some of these 18 indicted individuals are facing additional charges. President Trump is also facing a charge of false statements. Those stem from 13 false statements he made to a public official, Georgia Secretary of State. During this call, he also claimed that a tremendous number of dead people had voted in Michigan on November 3rd, 2020 which the prosecution, again, asserts is a false statement. So it's uh, a complex charging document, but Michigan factors in it significantly. Simon Schuster is a political reporter with MLive. You can read all his latest coverage on these indictments and Michigan politics in general at MLive.com politics. Thanks, Simon. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. You're hearing the sounds of America's fastest growing sport, according to the Sports and Fitness Industry Association. Pickleball sort of blends tennis, ping pong, and badminton, and uses a plastic ball, kind of like a heavier wiffle ball. And when the flat, wooden, or plastic paddle makes contact with that ball, it's a distinctive sound. Pleasant to some, unbearable to others. One Michigan city is cracking down on the noisy pastime, MLive's Brad Massman is based in Grand Rapids and brings us more on a controversial court case in the nearby city of Walker. Hey, Patrick, how are you doing today? Good. Did you get my pun there? Court case as in like a tennis court, not like a like a court court. I, I did catch that. It, it took me a second there. <laughs> OK, OK. So tell us about the court in question here. Okay. Um, yeah. So Monday night, I was just kind of scrolling on Facebook. Um, I follow the city of Walker. I, I live in Walker. So I started scrolling through and then actually read the post that they were closing the pickleball courts here in town over at like the main park by City Hall. So, you know, I started reading through some of the comments. Obviously, people had their various opinions, but the, the gist of it was, you know, a few complaining neighbors ruined it for everyone. And then one resident had advised, um, you know, tonight is the city of Walker commission meeting. If you want to voice your opinion, go there and let them know. Uh, nobody actually showed up to the meeting, but the mayor did talk about it. Um, you know, he said it was the city's bad basically on where they put that location. It was a detriment to nearby neighbors um, and that the courts would be closed until further notice. So yeah, the next morning I drove over to the courts. They had locks on all the gates, the fence there, the nets were removed. Um, they had put up like what you would call an orange plastic netting kind of diagonal through the courts. So yeah, it, if you ever visit the courts, yeah, there is, you could throw a football uh, into the back of somebody's house. It is less than a football field length away. Now, I'm sure neighbors have noticed more people playing pickleball in recent years. The sport really seems to be taking off, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I actually started playing myself probably six years ago now um, over on the other side of the state. And I've played in various like over in Arizona. I played in um, Florida, a bunch. It's just, yeah, it's growing everywhere. Oh, I didn't realize you're a pickleball player yourself, Brad. Tell us a bit about the sport and, you know, maybe what the appeal is, why it's growing so fast. Um, yeah, well, I've played tennis my entire life. I took a liking to it pretty quickly. I, not one to brag, but I consider myself a pretty good player. Um, and yeah, I've played a bunch of different people. Um, and when I say that, I mean like different ages. You know, I've played, played people my age in their 30s, and I've played people much older in their 60s. And usually in those cases, I lose. Um that's kind of the the interesting thing about this sport is it, it's for anybody. Anybody of any age could play this sport, and I think that's the big appeal. It's basically just um, tennis on a much smaller court with, like you said, a, kind of a wiffle ball. Uh, there's a bunch of different types of paddles that you can get. I guess comparing them to a tennis racket, they're much smaller. Uh, for those who might be familiar with racquetball, it's very comparable to that, but the face of the paddle is is solid. And yeah, once you hit that ball and you and you hear the ting ting ting, and imagine listening to that, you know, all day, you can maybe understand neighbors' complaints, but that's just up to the the individual person. You know, Brad, it's interesting. This issue, noise complaints from pickleball, it's happening all over the country. I guess a lot of folks find the sound to be really annoying and super audible indoors even. I came across similar stories from Virginia, Washington State, and here's a clip from a local newscast in Philadelphia. Some here in Chestnut Hill say pickleball has become a neighborhood nuisance. I wake up, I hear it. I walk down the steps, I hear it. Open the back door to let the dog out, you hear it. Now, in the context of Michigan, MLive has reported in the past that Grand Rapids is actually ranked the third most pickleball-obsessed city in the United States, and Walker is just a few miles outside of the city limits. So, Brad, what's the reaction been like to this court closure in the local pickleball scene? Well, it, I mean, it kind of forces everybody to go somewhere else. Um, like you'll read on social media, people who are paying their taxes here in town are no longer able to use the courts that those taxes go toward. But yeah, you're losing the people who could be playing here right now, and instead they're going elsewhere, most likely over to Belknap in Grand Rapids. And do these pickleballers uh, have any options from here, or is it just pickleball prohibition in the city of Walker? Well, I can tell you all that I know from what I heard at the city commission meeting was that there are six planned courts coming. They will be completed by springtime, which I'm under the assumption will be 2024. Uh, the location of where they're going to be, that hasn't been disclosed yet. But hey, any new courts is always a good thing. Well, it sounds like some compromise might be coming, more space for pickleball and more peace and quiet for the neighbors. You can read more about noise complaints and America's fastest growing sport, pickleball, by reading Brad Massman's story on MLive.com. Brad, thanks for joining us. Have a good one. Thanks, you too. Mental health and athletics is something overlooked far too often, but one former state champion football coach in Ithaca is trying to change that. Joining us is MLive sports reporter Hugh Burnrider. Hugh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So tell us about Terry Hesbrook. 
You sort of profiled him in your recent story. Who is he and what's this foundation he started? Well, he's, he's probably one of the most successful high school football coaches in the state. It was an incredible run of four straight state championships, five in six years. It's just a, a dom- he built a dominating program. And part of that program was his son, Brady Hesbrook. Uh, four years on the varsity, incredible quarterback, uh, went to Wayne State, uh, and and he was always there. He, like even when he was a little kid, I think he was a ball boy during some of their state championship season. So it was a it was incredible lineage, incredible run for Terry Hesbrook, which included his son. Well, Brady went to Wayne State, and and on January twenty seventh of this year. Uh, he drove home uh, without his parents knowing, and he, he killed himself at, at home in Ithaca. Uh, caught everybody completely off guard, caught his family off guard, the, the community, girlfriend, everybody around him was just, it was just stunning. I think there's a stereotype that, you know, the person who's, you know, depression or anxiety or might commit suicide is the, you know, the high school dropout or the, the person who's not involved or the, you know, the person failing in school, but here's a kid had, it seemed like uh, from the outside had everything, you know, great athlete, incredibly popular, stable family situation, but uh, he was facing anxiety issues that no one knew about. Uh, He didn't tell anybody. And so he, he, committed suicide and it uh it shocked the community it, it shocked the football community too but and it shocked a lot of people into action actually too and on that note after this tragic incident involving his son brady terry hesbrook did become active in trying to be an advocate for mental health in young adults and student athletes tell us about the the foundation that terry started well it's called the b4 foundation which is it's for brady which is b uh, he wore the number four and the plan words is that the goal is to have people who are facing situations uh, talk about it before anything happens uh, to get rid of the stigma, which is one of the big hurdles that that kids especially face. Because you don't want to be known as some, you know, in high school, you don't want to be known as someone who's, who is, oh, he's depressed, he's anxious, he's got mental issues. Uh, you have enough challenges in high school, right? So... Their goal is to get rid of that stigma that when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling anxious, reach out to someone, reach out to your parents, reach out to, to a friend and talk about it. And the goal for Terry Esbrook is to make sure nobody ever has to go through what he and his family are going through right now. Because he's I mean, he talks about how difficult it is just to get up in the morning, uh, just to go about your 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 day. And he talks about, you know, in the middle of the day, something will remind him and he'll start crying. And, and part of this B4 Foundation is his way of working through it, too. You mentioned one of Hesbrook's goals is to remove the stigma of depression and anxiety in young adults. How does Hesbrook hope this foundation will help people be more open about these issues? Basically, they want to get the word out and they're selling shirts, lanyards, wristbands. They're, they're selling everything with the B4 Foundation on it. The goal is that people will see it. We'll ask about it. We'll start to understand about it. It's nonprofit. Uh, basically, any money that you pay for it gets gets put back into it. And I think they're going to try putting together some scholarships and things like that. But the goal is 
So if people see it, people ask, what is that B4 Foundation? And it brings awareness. And if you go to their Facebook page, it is interesting because it's become almost a, a kind of a fad where you're wearing the shirt and wherever you go, if it's someplace unique, you get your picture of you wearing that shirt uh, and it gets put on the Facebook page. It was at the NFL draft party. Uh, a Michigan coach wore it. It's been in Curacao. It's been in California. It's been basically all over the world. And that gets put on Facebook. And basically, again, the goal is to have people talk. And the feeling is that if you can get kids talking from ages, basically puberty to 24 years old is a kind of a dangerous time uh, for mental health. Uh, uh, brains aren't fully developed. Uh, and kind of the, the part that's last to develop is the part that says, whoa, don't do that. You know, it's, it's basically you don't develop your brakes until you're 24. And the goal is that before 24, if you have an issue, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling depressed, if you're having suicidal thoughts, which is not uncommon uh, in high school kids, especially uh, to talk to someone, to get help. So leading up to this tragedy involving Brady Hesbrook, Brady originally hurt his shoulder his junior year of high school, and it's an injury that kept causing problems into his college career at Wayne State. Hugh, how might injuries play into the mental health of student athletes? Well, it takes away the routine. Uh, if you're an athlete, and, and, and if you've been an athlete all your life and been surrounded by football or whatever sport all your life, there's a certain routine. And first, you get the pain of an injury. Fans are always talking about, oh, he'll be back in a, in a year. They always talk about when they're going to be back. Well, all injuries are painful. They, they rarely discuss how much it hurts. So there, there's the pain there's the inability to participate in something you participated in your entire life, and you lose that routine. They, they talk about uh, how tough it is for a high school kid who's facing mental issues. When they go to college or when they go into the workforce, you're changing your entire lifestyle and routine. If you're a college athlete, not only is your time now more difficult to, to work with, uh, there's the pressure to perform. And then if you take all that away, like, like happened to Brady, he hurt his shoulder again as a freshman at Wayne State, and he wasn't playing this year. So you take, you take his whole entire lifetime of what he's used to doing, and now he has to adjust to not doing that anymore. Uh, it, it causes stress. And for people who already are facing some of that anxiety and depression, uh, it's just one more hurdle to get over. And, and he, there were no signs. They saw, they saw no signs uh, other than uh, he had trouble sleeping sometimes. Uh, but a lot of people have trouble sleeping sometimes. They said it's the only thing. There are some indicators. I talked to Jeff Olson, who, who another legendary football coach at Ishpeming, uh, who lost his son, uh, who took his life. And he said, you know, there's certain things. Uh, you're unable to laugh at jokes that you've always laughed at. Uh, you're feeling alone. You don't understand why you why you feel that way. And and even though you're a straight A student or you're an all state athlete or you know you're you're 18 years old and you 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 know repaired an engine on your own, you did remarkable things. But there's still the feeling that you're a loser, you know. And, and those are some indicators that you you need some help. And it's there's nothing wrong with looking for help. 
Sure. And Hesbrook's hope is that this foundation will be a way for these issues to be seen, to become more visible. What has the reception to Terry's efforts been like? What kind of support is his foundation getting? Well, so far, uh, the Facebook page, page, I think, has 2,500 uh, followers. They've sold over 2,000 shirts, uh, which are showing up everywhere. Uh, it's hard to, to put a number to, you know, how many people have it, has it saved? How many, how many kids have come forward because of it? But there's been individual stories, anecdotal, that a parent will say, oh, my son or my daughter, you know, saw this and asked about it. And, and now they're getting help and, and everything's on the way uh, positive now. Uh, again, it, it, it's only been a few months. It's, it's only been since January 27th. And they're hoping it just keeps growing and growing, growing it and and eventually becomes even bigger. Hugh Bernrider is a sports reporter with MLive. Head over to MLive.com slash high school sports to read more about the B4 Foundation, seeking to help young adults struggling with anxiety and depression. Hugh, thanks for your time. Thank you. And one more thing, if you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis, help is available. Just call or text 988 to connect with a trained crisis counselor. Moving now to the eastern Upper Peninsula, where this could be the end of an era for a popular tourist attraction. The Toonerville Trolley and Tequamanon Falls Riverboat Tours have been transporting visitors to Michigan's largest waterfall for 96 years. But this season could be its last. Joining us is Emily Bingham, who covers outdoor recreation and tourism for MLive, among other things. Hi, Emily. Hey, Patrick. So you published a great story this week that really digs into the history of this river tour service that, like I said, has been running for nearly a century. So take us back in time. How did the business get started? Well, we're going to go all the way back in time to the 1920s. And I would like to preface all of this by reminding readers that at this time, the Upper Peninsula was still largely wilderness. And especially the area around the Tequamanon River, which is home to the Upper Tequamanon Falls, which is Michigan's largest waterfall and quite a sight to see. So there was a gentleman named Joe Beach who was a conservation officer. And part of his duties at the time were to patrol the Tequamanon River every day. And people started finding out that this was one of the only ways you could actually reach and see the Tequamanon Falls. So dignitaries and politicians coming through apparently would reach out and ask him to see if they could ride along on his patrols, which were 14 hours long, by the way. And, uh, and they would get a chance to see this incredible natural wonder in Michigan. So Joe got the idea to officially launch a tour business. And in 1927, he um, made it official. But the problem was the tours were 14 hours long. (laughs) So he decided to see if he could rent a railroad to create a shortcut through the wilderness. And there happened to already be an existing stretch of narrow gauge railroad tracks through the forest. It was owned by a lumberman named Robert Hunter. And so Beach leased this stretch of tracks and would uh, ferry people through the forest on this on a train ride. And he, the original train was a Ford Model T that was kitted out with train wheels and a little train bed that he would pull behind it. So this trolley would go through the wilderness, deposit the passengers at the river, and then they would float in a boat called the Betty B 
down the river to see the Tequamanon Falls. So back in the 1920s, a trolley and a riverboat was one of the only ways to get to the falls. That's changed, of course. There's a state park at Tequamanon Falls now and trails leading right to a couple great lookouts. So with easier access to the falls a century later, why has this service remained so popular? That's a great question. I, I believe that it is just the nostalgia around the tours because they have remained relatively unchanged for almost a century. Passengers show up and they get on this really cute, quaint train trolley and they tootle through the woods and they see wildlife and get to hear narration along the way. And then they get to enjoy this peaceful float down the Tequamanon River and see it from an angle that other people don't get to see. So the other thing too, I would say is that It's not just the trip itself, but that so many people have done this with families. Um, People come back and say that they're celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary and that they had been there on their honeymoon, or they'll come back with their grandchildren and they had brought their children years prior. So it's it's really about nostalgia and also about carrying on traditions, I think. And I understand that all these years later, the same family is still involved in running this business. Is that right? It is right, yes. So, um... Joe Beach, who was the conservation officer who founded it, eventually became business partners with Robert Hunter, who was a gentleman who owned the railroad line. And now since the 80s, actually, the the two families have always been in business together. But since the 80s, um, the Stewart family, who are fourth generation from Robert Hunter, have been um, solely running the operation. And you've reported, though, that this might be the trolley and riverboats last season in operation. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, the owners are ready for retirement, and they say that despite it being a seasonal business, it's still quite a bit of hard work maintaining the train tracks and the and the equipment to run the operation. So um, they are looking for a, a buyer. They listed the business for sale last year, and no one has stepped forward yet. And unfortunately, if a new owner does not come forward, they said they would shutter the business after um, early October, which is when the last run of the season is scheduled. So the business is for sale. Do the owners seem hopeful that they'll find a buyer at this point? What's their attitude about it right now? Yeah, so I talked to Dixie Stewart, who is the wife of Chris Stewart, um, whose great-grandfather was Robert Hunter, and she does everything there. She um, takes tickets and runs the gift shop. She seemed... She seemed hopeful that somebody might step forward, but also ready for closing up shop if they have to. But I have to say that since the story ran, um, she I sent her a note just to let her know the story had published, and she wrote back and said she had already had several interested um, individuals step forward, uh, hoping to maybe take ownership at some point. So fingers crossed, because it would be so lovely that this, you know, if this tradition in Michigan could continue. Yeah, well, you heard it here first that it might, but it sounds like if you want to try this historic trolley and riverboat tour at Tequamanon Falls, you'd better play it safe and try it this season. You can read Emily's full story to learn so much more about the history of this business and this remarkable place in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. That's, of course, at our website, mlive.com. Emily, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. That's all for this week. Big thanks to all of MLive's reporters for their excellent work, which you can read at MLive.com. And thanks, as always, to you for listening and subscribing to this podcast. I'm Patrick Shea. Have a great weekend.